I mean, if a, if a patient came to me and they were hemorrhaging to death in the hospital, I mean, I'm going to treat them. I'm not going to say, no, I can't treat you because you shouldn't have had this abortion. Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Many of you are aware of my passion behind looking into the disparities amongst healthcare for minorities in America and all over the world. And our next guest is Dr. Tamika Cross, who is a board-certified OBGYN, graduated from the University of Michigan and went to medical school at May Harry Medical College and also completed her residency training as a gynecologist at the University of of Texas. So I'm thrilled to welcome onto the show Dr. Tamika Cross. Good morning, Dr. Cross. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you. I have been devouring your book. Congratulations. Thank you. I would love to know what drove you to writing this book, which, by the way, everybody, This book is called What a Doctor Looks Like. There is a beautiful image of Dr. Cross on the cover. And it's Society's Unrealistic Dreams Are Your Attainable Goals. So why'd you write the book? So um, a few different reasons. So I've always written, um, not published anything, but I've always written uh, my entire life. And I think what really drove me to actually publish a book and publish my story was when um, I had um, an incident on a plane that went viral when I was barred from helping an unresponsive passenger on the plane. And so after that happened and I shared my story publicly, I saw how many people that it truly resonated with that had had similar situations and so many minorities in medicine, whether it be women or people of color that had experienced the similar um, situation that I saw, like, we really need to share our story. We really need to share it to let people know what was happening, what was going on, some of the different obstacles that we face that other people don't face. And then Mm -hmm. also to serve as like an inspiration and motivation to, you know, that young child that's an aspiring physician or um, aspiring nurse or whatever it may be that, you know, even if society tells you that you're never going to become this or become that, that you can still reach your goal just by staying driven and having the right people mentor you in the right circle and creating that environment. So it was really a combination of all those things, but that's what really brought me to write the book. Mm. So we were chatting before about what happened on that flight. It was a Delta flight a few years ago and a passenger needed medical assistance Talk us through what happened, because I was sharing with you that I've actually been on a couple of flights myself where, you know, don't fly with me is all I can say, because a couple of people did die next to me. So I, I, but then I have been on, you know, thousands of flights. So the odds are that somebody might die. But uh, talk us through what happened. Yeah. So I was um, back home in Detroit for a wedding that um, week and I was coming back from Detroit to Houston. And so on the first leg of my flight, I was, you know, in the zone, had my headphones on watching a movie and a passenger, a couple rows in front of me became unresponsive. And so his wife was shrieking because she was just terrified, of course. And so the flight attendants went over to assist him 
And that's when I guess he came to. So they thought it was just the night terror. So then it can, it happened again just a few minutes later. And so that's when the flight attendant called for additional you know, help and saying that to the flight crew in the back of the plane that they needed to call for a physician or medical personnel because they, they need help at this point. So while she's walking past my seat, I try to flag her down to let her know that I was the physician that she was looking for and to see what was going on. And she, I was met with like a, a bunch of... Um, dismissive and and condescending remarks, you know, oh no, we're looking for an actual physician, you know, not right now, sweetie, you know. And so um, it was very difficult for me to get across that I was the physician. So by the time this is all happening, they're calling on the intercom of the plane saying that they're looking for um, a physician or medical personnel to press your call light button. So I go to press my button while she's still talking to me, asking me a million questions. And so I press it and she's like, oh, you're an actual physician. And then more questions came. Well, where do you practice? Why are you in Detroit? What kind of medicine do you do? Et cetera, et cetera. Do you have a copy of your credentials, your diploma, a business card? And I didn't have any of that on me, to be honest. And so while all this is happening, there was a middle-aged Caucasian man that was coming from the front of the plane to assist. And she said, oh, you know, he's a physician and he has his credentials, you know, thank you anyways. So um, basically, I stayed in my seat the whole time. He was allowed to assist the passenger. And um, throughout the flight, she was asking me questions, asking me for input. You know, this is his vital signs. What should we do? His blood pressure is low. What should we do? Et cetera. But it was all like with her being like the middleman or the mediator between right. that. And so that, that's kind of what happened. And so after the plane, um, I reported it to the gate agent who gave me a free drink ticket. And so I realized that they wow. did not that was understand. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so wow. I realized they did not understand the gravity of the situation at all. No. And so that's when I continued to kind of escalate it up. And when I shared it with social media, it went viral within like an hour or two. Wow. Wow. How did it make you feel? In that moment, I was frustrated. I think that's the best mm-hmm. way to describe it. Because you wanted to help, right? I you wanted really, to help. Truly, yeah. And yeah. to be honest, to be perfectly honest with you, like when you're on a plane, you're 30,000 feet in the air, you're not in your typical medical environment with staff yeah. and equipment. No one really wants to be in that situation. No one really wants to help. But at the same time, obviously, like my morals, like I can't like sit here with a, a person that's unresponsive knowing that I'm trained in, you know, AC, you know, ACLS, I can actually, you know, do CPR if needed and things like that. So I don't think it's right to just sit and and there's always medical personnel that sit in their seat and don't respond because it's scary. But at that moment, Mm. I really did want to help because I I didn't know what was happening. So it it was a bit frustrating, but it's not the first time something like that has happened. So, you know, it's very scary. I mean, I think back of these four people, literally one died at my feet and watching the scene of the air crew trying to resuscitate somebody, you know, pumping away on their chest is so scary Mm -hmm. and, you know, traumatizing, actually, traumatizing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let's, let's move on to, I'm very interested to understand from you the disparities in healthcare for minorities. What do you see out there? What are the gaps and what are the solutions? That's a great question. So there's a lot of gaps out there. Um, I think first and foremost, access to care. So that's a big, a big thing that's missing mm-hmm. in um, communities of color that, you know, you go into certain neighborhoods and they're having to drive, you know, 20, 30, 40 plus miles just to have access to quality care versus you go into another neighborhood 
and there's, you know, a clinic on every corner. So um, that is one thing that just having those barriers to even be able to access affordable yet quality health care. Yeah. It's a big deal. And then when you are able to find, you know, health care, again, big emphasis on quality, then it's like, you know, how are you how are those interactions with patients of color and their providers? And so are they being dismissed when they say they're in pain, when they're saying that, you know, they have this going on or that going on? Are they being dismissive? Are they actually being attentive to what's going on? Are they treating the whole patient and understanding you know, okay, you didn't take your medicine, so you don't care about your diabetes. That's it. Next patient versus like, oh, you didn't have your medication because you didn't have access to get to the pharmacy because the bus line wasn't running that day or whatever it may be. And so I think that's a big thing is just access. And the solution is for this particular problem, which there's several, but the solution I think is definitely to have more quality health care in those communities, in those inner city communities, because we're plagued with a different level of medical problems and pathology that is not necessarily seen elsewhere. So the high blood pressure, the diabetes, the high cholesterol, the heart disease, you know, we have worse prognosis when it comes to cancer. You know, we fare worse. I can go on for days, but there's a a lot of different things Mm -hmm. because of access alone and then because of the bias that occurs in the medical field in treating Mm. these patients. What about sexual reproductive health? Access to contraception, access to, let's say, abortions. What's the situation there? Yeah, so I mean, that goes, that's that's lumped into the same thing. So definitely having access to those things can be limited in certain areas. And so um, they do have more clinics. You see more clinics nowadays that are popping up in, in areas that are like inner city areas. But again, it goes back to like, is it quality care? Is it a hundred people in the waiting room and you're sitting there for hours when you end up just leaving because you don't have time to wait, you have to get to work or whatever it may be. So I think that that's definitely problematic. And then when it comes to abortions, it's going to be a little state dependent because it's very different. Like I've lived in Michigan, I've lived in you know Tennessee, I've lived in Texas. And in those three states alone, um, access was very different just depending on where you're at. And now I live in Texas and they're, they're essentially banning abortions right now. So yeah. It really depends on where you live. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. The Texas six-week ban. What are your thoughts on this and what havoc is it playing? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's crazy, um, to be honest. I think to have this type of ban, this type of control over women's reproductive rights is unconstitutional. That is definitely where I stand on it. And I've been trying to, I've talked to a few different outlets and talked to other providers and patients, and it's really not coming down to whether you believe in abortions or not, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life. It's really not about that. It's just about the fact that it's unconstitutional to ban somebody from even having this option. And so, of course, you know, some may argue, well, they're not banning it. They're just saying after six weeks or plus or minus six weeks when there's a heartbeat heard, but it's like most people find out they're pregnant as a practicing OBGYN. I know when patients come in, they find out they're pregnant, they've missed their period, et cetera, et cetera. They come in, they're already six plus weeks, sometimes even later in the first trimester. So it essentially majority of um, abortions will be banned. And even if they come in right before the six weeks, so they come in at five weeks and five days and or maybe even a little bit sooner and you don't quite hear that heartbeat yet, you know, it's just a matter of days that they would have to make the decision, which is a difficult decision for patients 
make the decision, find a place to actually perform it, get it done all within that narrow window of a couple days. So it is essentially banning. They know what they're doing. I think it's deplorable and um, I don't support it at all. Mm. So I, I've worked on these issues for the last 20 years and I see what's going on, mostly in the developing world where abortions really matter because women are going to find a way to have an abortion, right? When you want to have an abortion, you will find a way to have an abortion. What do you think are the ramifications of this ban in Texas where abortions, what what are the risks for women? That's a great question. So you're absolutely right. Some women, I think some women, you know, if they don't have access to it, I do think that sometimes they end up um, feeling forced into a situation of having a baby that they're not prepared for. But there are, you know, definitely situations where, you know, they're going to find a way to have that abortion. And so for somebody that has access to resources, they can hop on a flight, they can hop in a car, they can drive to another state, they can get to a place where they can have um, an abortion that is legal. But then you got to think about the people that don't have the the means to be able to do that. They don't have childcare for their other children to be able to do that. They can't take off work. They don't have the money to get on a flight. They don't have a car to drive across a couple states to get there. So in those situations, that's when you see these predicaments where people are having what they call like back alley abortions. And so they're, you know, going to these unauthorized illegal um, clinics, quote unquote, where they're performing these abortions and it's not by by skilled providers, it's not by usually even a physician or a medical provider at all. And so that is problematic because, you know, different instruments, are they sterile and what's their technique? Are they going to cause complications or permanent complications for you if you decide you want children in the future? Or are you going to hemorrhage to death or, you know, things like that? So it's very unsafe. And so now people are resorting to unsafe options to be able to get something done that they should be able to have access at their fingertips. Mm. So I imagine there's a lot of fear, both being a doctor and also being a woman living in Texas right now. Let's say you did go to a quack doctor and get a backstreet abortion and then you, as you say, are hemorrhaging or you have an infection. What is then the option for them? Can they come to a regular doctor and get treatment? And what are the ramifications then for the doctor? That's a great question. That wasn't fully outlined in this, but um, definitely like if they're hemorrhaging or have an infection or anything is going wrong, I always recommend going to the nearest hospital to be able to seek care. But I understand what you're saying as a physician, like, are you allowed to intervene and things like that? And to my knowledge, there's nothing that is barring that currently. And I think that as a physician, you know, our, um, you know, our Hippocratic oath and, you know, um, everything that we live by when we decide to be physicians is to treat the patient, do no harm, make sure that we're, you know, addressing life or death situations. So, I mean, if a, if a patient came to me and they were hemorrhaging to death in the hospital, I mean, I'm going to treat them. I'm not going to say, no, I can't treat you because you shouldn't have had this abortion. And I, I don't think that the, um, like SB8, I don't think it bans that after that. Mm-hmm. But still, mm-hmm. it's, it's risky because it's like, why do you want to wait for that to happen when really we shouldn't even be in the predicament in the first place? Yeah. I've heard that in some cases, even Uber drivers who drive a patient or a woman who wants to have an abortion to a clinic can also get persecuted. Is that right? Yep. Anybody that's deemed as assisting them getting an abortion, whether it's their ride, whether it's a family member, the Uber driver, whether it's, you know, the physician telling them what clinic they can go to to get it done, 
there's a lot of different things that technically under the way that it's written now, the language says that, um, you know, they can they can be sued. And it's not, you know, it's it's actually enforced by like third party like citizens. So now you have, you know, your neighbor or, you know, random Joe down the street that's now involved in my personal decision as a woman which is already difficult for patients, but now they're they're able to inject themselves into the situation to pursue a lawsuit. Wow. And they're rewarding it, so they're encouraging it. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really takes me back to the suffragette years. Me being British, you know, we had this group of women who were throwing themselves in front of horses and chaining themselves to the railings for women's rights, Mm -hmm. uh, the right to vote. And now it's the right to our own bodies and to choose what we want to do with our bodies. And, you know, I keep thinking about The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, are are we heading in that direction? I mean, it's so scary that a few men in gray suits can you know, put these policies in place that control our bodies. I mean, it's just, I mean, this is the 21st century. I mean, it's just disgusting in my mind. And I can understand in in some of the developing countries that I've worked in, but in Texas, in America, that this is happening. It's unfortunate, to say the least. Yeah. So let me ask you, Dr. Cross, why did you decide to become a doctor? So I decided to become a doctor. Um, I was exposed to the medical field at a young age. My grandmother was a registered nurse. And so I used to talk to her a lot about like her nursing school stories and, you know, different situations that she encountered. And then also when she um, got older, she started having, you know, different medical problems. And so I was always with her. I was with my grandmother like 24-7. And so I was always with her. So I went to her doctor's appointments and things like that. And so I was able to kind of be in the mix, I guess, at a young age to be able to be exposed to medicine. And I was really interested in it. And so um, over the years, like in school and things like that, I did participate in a few different programs to really see if that interest, because I like a lot of things. So it's like, is this real? Do you really want to do this the rest of your life? Because I had been saying it since I was a child. But then, you know, when I was in high school, I did participate in a few different programs. And I was like, oh yeah, this is it. And then I think it was just also knowing who I am, knowing my personality, knowing what I can bring to the table as a Black female physician meant a lot to me. And so, you know, I from talking to my grandmother and being with her at her doctor's appointments, I was able to see, you know, doctors that she liked, doctors that she didn't like, why, the bedside manner, how it varied. And so I just knew that that was a place that I could really, you know, make my mark and I could really make a difference because I do think that, well, I know now they have um, actually data to support it, but back then the data wasn't out. But I did know that, you know, patients feel more comfortable, you know, when you have somebody that looks like you or somebody who can just be very, you know, down to earth and very approachable. So I'm like, well, I can take my personality, you know, you have this stigma and this um, prototype of what you think a doctor is like. That's literally what the book is about. And, you know, whether you expect the doctor to look a certain way, talk a certain way, be from a different, a certain background or from a lineage of all doctors or things like that. But sometimes, you know, we have people like me that don't necessarily fit that mold. But I think that we can reach patients on a whole nother level and patients that may not be compliant because they can't relate to their doctor. They don't feel like comfortable opening up. I could make um, a difference in that area. So that those are all mm-hmm. the reasons that kind of led to me wanting to be a physician and wanting to be that that advocate for patients. Yeah. 
And are there some diseases and health issues that affect minorities more than us white folk? Oh, well, yeah. Um, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, like with the disparities. I mean, yeah, there's definitely a disproportionate amount of um, minorities or communities of color that experience pretty much the whole gamut of diseases. Like I said, from like high blood pressure to diabetes, to high cholesterol, to heart disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with like breast cancer, you know, it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Mm-hmm. So, you know, breast cancer, mm-hmm. things like that. And then they also like fare worse. They actually are finding it at later stages. And so the prognosis is poor for um, women of color. So yeah, there's, mm. there's a, a ton of diseases that do um, disproportionately affect us. And a lot of it, when you actually dissect the reason, I mean, it's not because we're like genetically different. It's because of the system, the systemic issues that exist that bar us from being able to have access to care access. Mm-hmm. and access to healthy, healthy foods and food choices. You know, you go into, you know, the inner city and they have Um, A Popeye's on one corner, KFC on another, you know, McDonald's on the other. And then where's the grocery store? Right. So you talk about food deserts. And so, I mean, it's it's a whole systemic issue that is contributing to that. Yeah. But don't you think it's also education? You know, I live here in Washington, D.C. And, you know, the rates of HIV AIDS infections are much higher amongst African-American communities than any other community. In fact, some rates are the same, say, as in Haiti. Why do you think that is? Is it is it access to the right education, the right services, the right products? What What's the gap here? So, yes, I do think education plays a role, but I think access to care, again, is another issue there as well. Because when you think about it, you know, a lot of African-American, well, people of color in general, it's not just African-Americans, they're scared of the doctor. They're scared to go to the doctor and you look at the the historic reasons behind it, right? You look at the Tuskegee study, you look at all these different things that they used to do over the years to experiment on black people or people of color or enslaved people. And so at the end of the day, people are scared. They don't trust the doctor. So as far as going in for routine checkups, going in to get tested, going in for different things like that, you know, is very anxiety producing for a lot of um, people of color. And so with that, it's going to perpetuate things like that. So people are, you know, potentially, you know, passing something that they don't even know they have in some cases. Mm, So I think it's all interrelated. But I I do think education (laughs) plays a role too, um, educating the communities. And then are they receiving that education or is it just kind of going in one ear while the other because you're talking to this unrelatable person that is judging you and your three children? You yeah. Know. Well, you know, they're very lucky to have you there in Texas. We need to clone you and uh, have <laughs> you all over the country, all over the world. Thank you. One thing that we've identified is the role of parents. You know, if we're, if we're going to break any societal norms, I, I think parents have a really great opportunity to be able to talk to their children, right? Talk mm-hmm. to their children about nutrition, talk to their children about puberty, about your first sexual encounter. And you know, I've worked in healthcare for 20 odd years and we never really focused on the parents, right? It's always like, well, we need more clinics, we need more access, we need more services and products, but we haven't really focused on the parents. And actually we're going to do a study here in DC about what the barriers are to parents talking to their children about these issues. I mean, let's be honest, you know, when I was growing up, I might have been pretending that I wasn't listening, but I was listening. And everything, particularly my mother said, 
really got through to me. In your communities, what do you see happening between parents and children? So um, I do agree with you 100% that um, we need to focus more on parents as well to be able to provide these educational resources to their children. But again, it's, it's what are they presenting? So number one, do they know the information that they need to present to their children? So sometimes it's educating yeah. the parents first. And then what tools do you have for the parents to be able to, to pass along to their, their child? Whether do you have pamphlets? Do you have a book for them to, you know, go over with them? Then it goes down to, you know, the time, you know, are they working three jobs? Are they working three jobs to be able to, you know, make ends meet? So are they actually, you know, able to be there, to be home, to be able to kind of educate in this sense? Then you look at the schools too, because I think the education, definitely a lot of this should be taught in the schools and the education that you get in certain neighborhoods, inner cities or places of color is very different as far as the resources that they have access to there or some of the after school programs that are there or non-existent. So um, I think that that's definitely a gap. Um, like you've explained, there's a mm-hmm. gap there. Mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. by filling in those gaps and to really empower parents and to equip them with the the tools needed to be able to kind of pass it along to generations to come is very, very mm-hmm. important. And in your area in Texas, what's going on with sex ed at school? Do you know? So from my knowledge, it's not really taught like it was when I'm 33 years old and I'm from Detroit. So um, we, it was a part of our educational curriculum. And um, I would guess that um, both the, you know, that with you as well, that you probably learned some element, maybe? I don't want to make an assumption. Oh, well, I was, I was educated in England and it was so minuscule and it was, it was presented in a way that was embarrassing and clinical and it wasn't fun. And, you know, we just blocked our ears. I mean, it was, in fact, I, I seemed, I just really remember them holding up like a brick of a menstrual pad and saying, and, you know, and that was pretty much it. So mm-hmm. they focused on the girl and not nothing for the boy. And, you know, I I think that is one of the major problems. And we've been really researching at the body agency that we got to think about boys and men as well as women in the equation here. Because again, we're just not going to break the cycle at this point if we... If schools and parents don't engage, is is my humble opinion. I think if the government are going to put restrictions and bans on our bodies... We have so much that we can do amongst ourselves, amongst our own communities. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, actually, I was telling Melissa earlier that one of the products that we've made is a vulva puppet Mm -hmm. so that we can really show a girl's anatomy and she, she, right? But we had a breakthrough because we were having so many women get in touch with us saying, okay, that's multicolored. What about, do you have a brown one? So we actually made a brown vulva puppet. (laughs) And (laughs) so, you know, it's what we're getting there, right? Mm -hmm. Baby steps. We're Mm -hmm. getting there. But actually, these these vulva puppets are made by these incredible women in Southeast Asia and Laos, and they're disabled. And, Mm. you know, they make often have to make these puppets with their feet because their hands are, they can't use their hands. So, so anyway, to get back to to schools and sex ed, 
with the also restrictions of the government, it's becoming less and less and less. So oh, yeah. what are your thoughts? What can we do? You know, you, you're a gynecologist as well. Mm-hmm. What sort of things do you see on the gaps of, of also the knowledge that people have when they come into your into your practice. Uh, also about pregnancy and maternal health and breastfeeding. We know that that's a superfood for your baby. It really is getting the information to these people in the right way that they can relate to. Yeah, that's why I think it's important to, um, that's actually something that I'm actively trying to do now, it's funny you ask, is trying to get into some of the, the local schools to be able to kind of hold some of these different forums. I think what I've noticed is not only are, um, and it can be a difficult topic to talk about. And I think because society has made it such a taboo topic that so many people are uncomfortable having that conversation, whether it's with their children, whether it's with their students, things Mm -hmm. like that. And so I think that a lot of times it gets glossed over. My experience with someone of yours, I feel like I had a pretty good sex ed when I was growing up. However, you know, now that you mentioned it, it was, you know, heavily focused on the woman. And it definitely was kind of like a, a lot of giggling and, you know, embarrassing topics and things like that. So how do we, you know, get that information to make sure it actually sticks and people understand what's going on and, you know, how to protect themselves. So I do think that that's an important thing as well. And then um, I think it's important for the government to understand that, you know, by not incorporating this into to curriculums and not requiring schools to necessarily touch on these topics, that we're doing a great disservice to the community because now where are they getting their information? It's 2021. They're going to go on the Internet, right? And so going on the Internet, and that's what I find with a lot of my patients, especially my teenager, adolescent patients. They're like, well, I saw on Instagram that all I got to do is if I have a little itching, I just pop this little pearl in and I'm like, well, hold on. What is, what is this pearl? What are you putting in your vagina? Like, and it's just like, oh, I saw on Instagram, I saw on, you know, TikTok or, and so that's where people are getting their information from because number one, they don't feel comfortable asking their parents or their parents don't feel comfortable talking about it. And patients are hungry for this information. And so they go to what's at their fingertips, which is their cell phone or their computer or, you know, what have you, or from their friends. So um, my biggest thing is encouraging parents to bring their child in at a young age. So a lot of parents will ask me, well, you know, I have a 13-year-old daughter. Is it too young for her to come see you? I say, absolutely not. It's not too young because it's important to normalize coming to the gynecologist, talking about your body while you're going through all those pubertal changes. You know, it can be very overwhelming for women and or young ladies. And so I think starting at that young age, at least for, for my patient population, obviously it's women only. But same with guys and they need to go to the, not go to the doctor when they're 21 for the first time or not, you know, talk about these things when they've already had sex, when they've already caught an STD, when they've already gotten somebody pregnant or gotten pregnant, you know, like it's really intervening at a very early age to normalize that and to make them feel comfortable. Well, also, I mean, let's be honest, kids at what, 11, 12 should be getting the HPV vaccine as well. Yeah, as early as nine. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I got to get my daughter into the clinic. Well, we've covered a lot. You've been extremely successful in your advocacy. You've been on a lot of very high profile TV shows. You've been written up in the Washington Post. How has this changed your life? And, And what's next for you? I mean, you're so young and experienced and knowledgeable But now you have this sort of newfound platform where, you know, you are that doctor. (laughs) What are you going to do with it? Yeah. So thank you, first and foremost. I think um, it's really 
to answer your first question, what is it like? So initially, it was very overwhelming because a lot of it took off when that Delta situation happened um, a few years ago, as far as like people finding out about me, right? And so that was a little overwhelming because you know how the media can be um, very intrusive in your personal life and waiting for me outside of my job and my house and calling my parents and stalking me and things like that. So um, plus, you know, I received death threats, racist emails. So it was very, I'm not going to lie, it was very overwhelming. You know, like a lot of my friends and family were like, oh, we're so proud of you. This is so great. And I'm like, but they didn't see the other side. The side when I kind of wanted to curl up in a ball, cry, break down, but I refused to back down because I'm like, this is something we need to talk about. So it was very difficult initially. Now I've been um, doing this for a while. And even, you know, when all the cameras and spotlights and things like that go away, I continue my advocacy because I think it's extremely important. I'm passionate about it. And as far as like what's going next for me is I just plan to continue to get the word out about a lot of these different topics. I always pride myself on being comfortable talking about the topics that nobody else wants to talk about. And I think those are the topics that people are really yearning for information. So, you know, getting into the schools, you know, COVID has definitely put some some setbacks and some of my different um, traveling and things like that. But I've been coast to coast talking to, you know, students and adults and communities and clinics. I mean, literally from California to Harvard and just being able to really get the word out there and to have an open forum. And so um, during the pandemic, I've really used my social media to get some of that information out, um, you know, in the absence of like live in-person events that I was doing before. Yeah. Well, we are thrilled to have had you on the show. We are very excited to do a special promotion of your book together with some free giveaways from The Body Agency. So stand by, go to thebodyagency.com to learn more about that. And Dr. Tamika Cross, you are a marvel. You have made a difference in so many people's lives. I know you're going to continue on with the good fight. As I said before, the world needs more doctors like you. So thank you for your service and thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for your kind words and for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body, and Soul. Remember, you can find all of my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. Be sure to sign up for our email list at thebodyagency.com for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotion code to get a 10% discount, podcast10. Thanks for listening.